Good morning, church. Hey, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here, and uh, we're glad that you're with us. We're completing this series, which is our summer series, uh, through uh, Peter's writing. We call it 1 Peter. It's one of the first letters we have that he wrote to the early church to encourage them. And uh, I'd like to kind of rephrase that all together. I think that this is a letter of hard conversations. Uh, I'm not good at hard conversations. I know people suspect I'm, I, I tend to be a bit bold, and so they wonder if, if I'm just rough on everybody. Now, I actually avoid them at all costs, like I think most human beings do. Uh, to have hard conversations, I remember as a kid growing up, to have my mom and dad say, Mark, come in and sit down, we need to talk to you. That was going to be a hard conversation for me. Uh, I've had that where Heather said, I need to ask you something. And every time she gives that phrase, I panic because I know we're about to have a hard conversation. Hard conversations awaken us, they threaten us, they fix us, they encourage us, they challenge us. That's why we don't like to have hard conversations because we want to be left alone to float and do things the way we hope they'll come together. Yet hard conversations are the things that scare us and enlighten us and encourage us. I think the reason I want to say that Peter wrote this to the early church to have hard conversations is he was warning them from their very beginning that life would not be easy and smooth this side of the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. He's encouraged us, if you remember, and you've been with us uh, all 10 weeks this summer, uh, I've wanted to encourage you by reminding you that Peter's not calling us to do a list of things. He's calling us to be a certain kind of people. And there is a vast difference between being a holy priesthood, a believer built on the hope of the resurrection, and living that out with joy and encouragement and community, than it is to do a bunch of religious things so that God might like you at the day's end. It's a hard conversation, but it's a conversation Peter's had with us all summer, and he's been having with the church for close to 2,000 years. What I'd like to be able to do is, as Peter finishes this letter, and remember the chapter and verse uh, indexes are not in the original text. This would have been a letter read out loud to a group of believers and they would have thought about it and prayed about it and talked about it. And so we've broken it down over 10 weeks and it's really easy to say, well, Peter's done with that point. He's moving on to the next one and that's not always accurate. There's a lot of therefores in 1 Peter. He's connecting the dots, if you will. But now we see Peter heading to the conclusion of this letter and this is the encouragement within the hard conversations. I'd like to begin by just pointing out that he's going to share with us opportunities to lead within the kingdom. That's the first point of this last 11 verses, is that he's pointing out to what he calls the elders. Some churches uh, refer to them as bishops, presbyters. There's, there's varying words for this. If you allow me to use a word that's been used in antiquity, stolen away from us, but I'd like to return it, is he's talking to the church fathers. He's talking to those who have been set apart by the body to oversee the church family. We call them elders here. We have 10 of them at Christ Church. And uh, I'm grateful for each and every one of them. And I don't just say that because they're kind of my boss. I say it because I get to spend time in prayer with them every week as we gather. And I believe that these men have what's best for this community at their heart. And it's one of the reasons God's showing favor to us is because of humble servant leaders leading us. But Peter writes the first four verses. Let's read it together. To the elders among you, some of your Bibles say shepherds there. It's an interesting picture. I appeal as a fellow elder shepherd, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Peter doesn't set himself above them as something special. He says, I'm one of you. I love that. 
Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He's given us some encouragement in this first passage. Now, many of us could look at this and say, well, this is written to the elders of the church, so it really doesn't apply to me, and I would say that's not true. There is no principle espoused here that every believer shouldn't shoot for. In fact, I don't believe there's one principle espoused by Peter that every one of us can't manifest in our lives, regardless of a position or title. So having said that, let me see if I can justify that position. The first thing he encourages us to do is care for the church. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Take responsibility for your church. But what probably the most, two most important words I would suspect in verse 2 are the two words God's flock. And if you'll allow me to, to ride my little pony around the stage here for a moment, I'd, I'd like to correct a problem in the American church as I see it. It is not my church as the senior pastor here. It is not your church as a tithing member. It is and always will be God's church. Now, I don't say because that's a major problem here, but you have full license to correct me if I ever refer to this as my church, as my possession, instead of the church that I place my membership and involvement and service in. So let's just review where we've been so far. Peter says, it is God's church, let's care for it. Now, my father instilled in all four of his boys that it is our church, and that was always relevant to work days. We're going to go work. Why? Why do we have to? Because it's our church. I understood what that meant. But may I never, ever believe that this is my church. It is God's church, and I've been given some responsibilities to be a part of those that oversee it, and I take that to be not only a great privilege, but an incredibly heavy responsibility that we should all care for God's church. Because when you talk about leadership today, and in fact, I actually get to, to teach a course, very blessed to be able to teach at Ozark Christian College, and I teach the thing called leadership and ministry, and it's funny to sit down with 18 to 22-year-olds and talk to them about leadership. They roll their eyes. It's like an obscenity. Oh, you think you're a leader. It kind of cracks me up because leader's a dirty word now. If you're a leader, it means you're power hungry. You want to control people. You want to be in charge and everybody snap to attention. Well, let's put that to bed right now. Nowhere are any of us called to be powerful leaders in the Bible. We're called to be servant leaders, meaning that we will give up our best for someone else's best every moment of the day. That's what it means to be a leader in the kingdom. It's not about power. It's about responsibility. In fact, Paul said, so that men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the secret things of God. We have a secret the world needs to know, and it's our responsibility to dispense that. So how do we care for the church? I'm going to give you just two quick things that I I see Peter doing here. First thing, he tells us to serve willingly. Uh, That's important. It's not only important because Peter wrote it, but it's important in the church that if your service is wearing you out and making you angry and frustrated and you can't wait till you don't have to serve in that area, I'd, I'd suggest you get out of it. Because ministry ought to make your tail wag. It can be hard work. And sometimes there can be frustrations. And working with people is not always easy. But if you wake up every morning getting an opportunity to serve God in your area of giftedness, you're blessed. So to lead and care for the church, we should do it willingly. 
And Peter says, serving not because you must, but because you, you want to. Have you ever had that moment in your home, especially let me talk to the guys, because women always outwork us and care for us so much better than we care for them, which is a shame, but yeah, I think it's true. Have, has your wife ever asked you what you want for dinner in such a way that you'd rather not eat? Am I the only one? What do you want for dinner? Um, right now I'll starve because uh, I'm not sure you wouldn't poison me in that next uh, bowl of soup. Uh, I love Heather, but there's times I'm like, you just don't really want to cook, and I'm going to wait till you go to bed, so go right ahead. I always respond with a lie. I'm good. I wonder if serving willingly cannot be represented in our church this way. If, if you hate doing what you're doing, let somebody who loves to do it do it. Let's see how the kingdom grows and expands, and your heart finds a better place. It's okay. Third thing he tells us is serve selflessly. Serving not greedy for money, but eager to serve. I think that's one of the reasons the word leadership is such a filthy word in our culture today is leaders have taken advantage of followers to their own personal advantage and it makes all of us upset. You see, we don't serve the kingdom for what we get out of it. We serve the kingdom because we've already gotten everything we'll ever need. Right, church? Let me say that again. We don't serve Jesus because he might give us something else. We serve Jesus because he's already given us everything we will ever need in all of our lives. See, he says, serving, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. it's, It's that old adage, don't just tell people what they're to do, but take them with you as you do it. It it echoes. I'm sure Peter heard the words of Jesus echoing in his heart and mind when he dictated this letter to, to Silas, and he said, hey, write these words down. He said, this is what I'm thinking, and it's crafted. If you read 1 Peter compared to 2 Peter, you know somebody wrote 1 Peter and the other person wrote 2 Peter. The style of writing and everything's unique. But he had to have heard Jesus' words in Matthew 20. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the demonstration of our service and caring for the church is not in how gifted we are. It's how willing we are to serve our Lord when no one's clapping, no one's whistling, and no one's saying thank you. When you're under persecution, is Jesus still the motivation for doing it in spite of the risk to you? This is what Peter's been telling us all along in these hard conversations. And so he said, do it willingly and don't do it for personal gain. Do it because it's your heart's desire. That's why Paul would tell uh, the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. The example is right in front of us. So that's the example of how to care for the church. And whether you're a a shepherd of the church or not, you can care for the kingdom by using your giftedness and loving the church over and above yourself. But there's also opportunities to be led within the kingdom. And this is found in verses 5 through 7. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, And I hope this isn't. I said this first hour, and I want to be clear about this. I hope this doesn't come across as a humble brag. But one of the things that I most enjoy about being a part of this church, and it's not about me, it's what I love what this church, God's able to do here, 
is that I meet people who are coming from other backgrounds. They've been out of church for a while. They were injured in church. They were taken advantage of. They come with hard hearts and scars and they're very protected. Or they come grieving because they've left a ministry they've been involved in for years. And they, they come in and they just need, in a big room, they just need to be able to sit, worship God, and be loved. And we get that. And I'm glad you can do that here. But my heart breaks for the number of people who have to tolerate the community of the kingdom of God in hopes of staying alive long enough to survive it. And I want to thank you for being a church where people can come in here without a lot of politics or arguments. We, We don't agree on a lot of things around here. But we agree on the most important things. One faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all. And the rest of it's just salt and pepper. It's just seasoning. But that's the meat of who we are. And we're not better than any church. Please don't understand what I'm about to say. But I believe the church ought to be a community where someone can come in hurting and someone can come in celebrating and they're treated the same. And that there's a healing that takes place. When we act like it's God's church and not our church, it can become the church that changes people's history. So pray for your elders. Pray for your preacher and the ministers of this church. That God will never let us make it about ourselves, but instead we can make it about him. Because when we're willing to be led, see, there's a young man who doesn't want to leave my sermon. Did you notice that? He has phenomenal taste. And a cute hat. All right. Three things that Peter does here with opportunities that we can be led and encouraged, that you can find peace and hope here. First of all, be willing to listen and learn. In verse 5, he tells us to listen to the wisdom of the elders. Listen to the older people. Paul talks about this regularly. Younger women in this church, you should be spending time with older women who can speak to you about the things they've experienced by the grace of God. And younger men, we need to humble ourselves and place ourselves in a mentoring relationship with men that are older than us that can give us their wisdom and understanding. When you say in the church, I've got this, you're wrong. You're wrong. You see, be submissive. And the word submission has two components to it, obedience and respect. Now, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean that every time someone older than you tells you to do something, you're supposed to do it. But you should respect the wisdom from which they come and the perspective from which they offer. Peter's talked to us a lot about submission in this book. Submission to our employers and our masters. Submission to the laws of man. Submission uh, within a marriage. Submission to the authority of Jesus Christ because even those who are in rebellion against Jesus are under his authority. Peter's initial counsel to younger people in the church is there's a lot of wisdom around you, pay attention. And it's not about their authority. It's about our unity. And then he tells us, secondly, to respect God's authority. And this might surprise us, but really the truth is, our disobedience will always come down to whether or not we believe God knows what he's talking about. And when we don't believe that God knows what he's talking about in a certain area of our life, we'll go do our thing, and we don't respect the authority that God has for us. Verse 5, it says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. Place yourself in submission to God's truth and his word, and watch what he does to our community. It's not just good for you, it's good for all of us. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, one of the most famous, uh, probably the most famous passage in Micah's prophecy. It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want you to notice some verbs going on here. To act, to love, and to walk. 
All of those are actions that God expects of us, desires from us might be a better term. Act, love, and walk. But notice what the recipient or the product of those verbs are. If we act toward uh, justly, then we're taking care of those who can't be taken care of or not being taken care of. If we love mercy, then we're being forgiving and kind and generous. And to walk humbly with God is we're giving God the respect he deserves. Did you notice that those verbs in Micah 6, 8, are, you're not the recipient of any of them, you're the giver of all of them? To, to have justice and mercy and to walk humbly are all actions that bless others. I find that fascinating. And I find that a lot like Jesus. And then he tells us to be dependent. Verse 7, cast all your cares upon him. You see, and this is, again, it comes down to how we live in community. If the church is something that you're using instead of something that allows you to be useful, then we look at the church and say, the church isn't meeting my needs. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not sure the church is supposed to meet your needs. I think the church is a conduit by which you find out what your real needs are by giving your life away. I know some of you are freaked out going, of course, you expect a preacher to say that on a Sunday morning. I'm just being honest with you. This is a hard conversation. The reason the church doesn't resonate with some people is they're using the church instead of allowing the church to make them useful, for which all of us were here sent to serve. So he says, cast all your cares upon him. Bring it to him. Matthew 11, 28, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't sound like a domineering, controlling, authority-hungry leader, does it? He said, no, bring it to me. I can handle it better than you can. And why do we do that? Verse 7 continues, because he cares for you. This is a God whose goodness is not brought about by your obedience, God's goodness, kindness, and mercy are who he is. And he has shown that to us on our worst day. So don't think that if you obey God, then his goodness will pour upon you and you'll just open the old favor fountain and God will drench you. He's been drenching you from the day you were born. Can you trust the God who's been good to you when you've not been good? Jesus uses the word abide in the Gospel of John. This is what it means to cast our cares upon him. Because a life of maturity as a Christian is, find on, is founded on how dependent on Jesus we become. How, how truly reliant we are for his wisdom and his understanding and most importantly his timing. So we've talked about how we can care for the church, take responsibility for that. We've looked at how we can be cared for and participate in this greater thing called the kingdom. Lastly, Peter challenges us in this beautiful, triumphant conclusion, how to stand firm in the hope of our faith. We entitled this series, Building on Hope, because what Peter says is, when life kicks you in the stomach and knocks the air out of you and asks you to make a big decision, a life or death decision about whether or not we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God raised from the dead, when life comes at you and it tries to tempt you away and when you won't take its temptation, it turns on you, how will you respond? It all depends on your hope. And Peter concludes this letter in an amazing way, verses 8 through 11. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And in this grand conclusion to this hard conversation, Peter ends it with encouragement and strength. First of all, he tells us to pay attention. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Allow me to be your preacher for a moment. The terminology that he uses here is to be watchful or has the option of saying, not under the influence of intoxicants. And you think, well, I don't drink or I don't do drugs. We're not even ta- That's not the intoxicants many of us are drunk with. How about entertainment? How about busyness? How about noise constantly in our life so we can't be introspective, contemplative? We can't meditate on the scriptures because we're being bombarded with advertisements and music and, and just constantly filled with noise. I'm not trying to shame you, but some of us say, I can't hear God. If, then be quiet. And silence the unnecessary around you. The older I get, the more I enjoy silence. Am I the only one? I don't know how many times I've had to say to my youngest son, the world doesn't need any more noise. Shh. He's constantly clicking, making noise, beatboxing. It's like for the love child. Silence. And in silence, it's driving with the car radio off. You know they do turn off. And your phones have an off switch, not just for a few moments a day, but the world will survive if you're not available. And God wants our attention. He won't fight for it. So we have to pay attention. We have to be controlled. Busyness does not placate our need for God. It doesn't justify our lack of participating in this grand adventure called faith. Jesus used similar terminology in the garden when he said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Pay attention to what's going on around us. And then he says, because the adversary is prowling like a lion. I don't have time to share Powerful illustration, but I I love the National Geographic stuff. I love when 93 gazelle are shooting across the field. Oh, man, flying, just beautiful. And then one dumb one will say, everybody go left, and he goes left, and they all go right. And you can see that one gazelle out in the open going, oh, man, and they're the lionesses. And they've waited for one to separate itself from the pack. I don't think that Peter's use of a lion prowling to attack an isolated victim is unintentional. For those that don't see the beauty of the church and the community of strength that we can be for one another, healing and encouraging and uplifting, they don't understand that the lioness looks for the one gazelle who makes the wrong turn and when isolated is defenseless. And so we are being cautioned to pay attention to the world in which we live, to silence the noise so that our focus is on the hope of Jesus Christ and not the hope of this world. And then he tells us to show courage in verse 9. Resist him standing firm in the faith. I would love to have about 20 minutes to sit and talk with us about this. Resist him. You can. Please understand that. Flip Wilson used to tell us 100 years ago that the devil made him do it. It's a lie. You can resist sin. But let me clarify but you can't do it on your own. You can resist sin with the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel truth leading you? Absolutely. Trying to do it on your own willpower? How's that been going? 
You see, the Puritans like to say we have a besetting sin, which is a fancy way of saying we got one hook in us that's tough to get out. And we choose to put that hook in because we like where it takes us. But that one besetting sin, that thing that you've tried, you, you know the shame of when you come out of this sinful activity. You, you slandered someone. You've looked at something you shouldn't have. You've become intoxicated or drugged on something. You've had an affair with someone. And you walk out of it and you feel that gross, filthy shame. And you say to God with all sincerity, I'll never do that again. And then we what? We do it again. Because we're saying, by my own power, I'm going to overcome this sin I've entrapped myself in. You can't. You can resist sin through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel message. You can. On your own, you're lying food. Resist him. James would say, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You're going to have to make a choice. The more aware you become of the world we live in, you're going to have to make a choice to resist the things that once made you feel good or got you through a tough moment so that you can say yes to greater things based on who Jesus Christ is in your life. And then the third thing he tells us is what I just told you. Find your strength in him. It's not in you. It's not in what church you attend. It's not what teacher you sit under. It's not where you were raised in your lineage of faith. The only thing that's going to sustain any of us through the temptations of life and the sufferings we face is going to be the fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and he alone deserves all the glory and honor. He says, and the God of all grace will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Even in our worst moments, the resurrection is real. Even in our worst fears, the resurrection is true. Even when the world hates us, the love of God is more than we need. Even when we face our hardest days, the truth is found in the hope of the resurrection in a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so we could walk into the new kingdom and invite others on this journey called faith. So this morning... It's very possible that some of us have been provoked. We've stopped and thought, I do need to pay attention. I've not. I just go along with life because I live in a safe country. I live in a safe time. Nothing can be going wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's a difference between turning off the noise and hearing for the voice that may call you a different direction. For some of us today, we need to be prayed with. You're hurting. You're discouraged. You have great questions. This is a safe place to be you. So around this room are four tables with lamps on them. We encourage you, as we sing or after the service, go to one of these tables. We'll meet you there. No pressure. If we can pray with you, we'll pray with you. If we can uh, set you up with a counselor to talk about your questions or one of our uh, ministerial staff, we'd be happy to do that. And for some of us, we're being provoked to, for the first time in our life, profess that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Share that with somebody here today. Go to one of the tables. Come see me out in the foyer. Let's have a conversation about the next steps for your life. Because Jesus Christ is worth it. And Peter is proclaiming to all of us, by the power of God and the glory of Jesus, we will be victorious if we remain steadfast and firm to who he is. Let's stand together.